we don't feel like going back to school, so we're calling in the substitutes. Substitute teacher episode of the Nerd by Word starts now. Welcome into episode 160 of the Nerd by Word podcast. Uh, and as stated in the tease for this episode, this is our final recording before we have to go back to work after summer break. So in true spirit of dragging our feet, we are calling in the substitutes. We are talking about our favorite fill-ins, substitutes, replacements uh, in comics. Uh, but first, as always, it is time for... Dave, it's a bit of a lean week uh, on news, but what do you have for us? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. This seems like giant news to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so uh, DC Comics has made a really cool announcement for a seven-issue limited series that's got me hyped because it hits the sweet spot of everything I love, uh, superhero and kaiju. Uh, teaming up with Legendary Comics, they are going to produce a series called Godzilla versus Kong versus the Justice League. Um and ho- holy smokes, I didn't know I needed that. Uh, it, it sounds absolutely awesome. Um, there's been some promo images released as well as a trailer showing some of the art for the series. Uh, there's absolutely some fantastic stuff going on in there already. Obviously, this is going to be an out-of-continuity tale, but we have a uh, a giant mecha Batman robot that's apparently going to be used in the fight. Uh, there's some really cool shots of just Superman flying towards Godzilla, which are absolutely bonkers. It's something I never thought I would see in my life. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it, it, it looks, you know, really, really cool. Now, uh, I've mentioned before, uh, on the pod that I'm a big fan of the, uh, of the Toho Godzilla movies and just Kaiju movies in general. Um, and so this is a real treat as a, you know, big fan of Superman, DC comics and justice league in particular, seeing them, uh, tangle with Godzilla in particular, uh, is just a really big deal. Now Kong, I will freely admit is not, you know, my all time favorite, uh, monster movie or anything like that, you know, big ape. Okay, uh, Godzilla on the other hand, I absolutely adore. So uh, I'm I'm really psyched for this, and I'm very curious to see how you know what kind of storytelling uh, conventions they will use to bring all these characters together. Uh, you know, if we can expect uh, you know to see uh, some other characters, particularly other kaiju from the Godzilla universe, Mothra, Ghidorah, Mechagodzilla. I mean, the, the more we can throw in here, uh, the better. Uh, there were some teases made that we'll we'll see uh, some Gotham City related characters in the story as well. Uh, there'll be some Titans and some auxiliary Justice League members. So it's a pretty big cast in addition to the core Justice League. Um, so this sounds really really exciting. And uh, when it comes to event comics and and strange little crossovers, you know, I mean, and there's been a lot of those. You know, there's been some TMNT Power Ranger crossovers and and TMNT and and Batman and. Uh, there's all sorts of you know intercompany crossovers happening. Uh, we had you know Doctor Who and Star Trek a few years back. Uh, I think this is this is a really uh, a really cool idea actually, and I'm I'm quite excited for this one, Chris. Yeah, it's always fun to kind of have stuff like this, and it 
it almost like harkens back to like when you were a kid with all your action figures and you had your own crossovers. Like I remember my, um, I had a bunch of, I was big, I was a big attitude era fan as, as we've talked about on the show quite a bit. Uh, I had all of my wrestling action figures. I had a backpack full of them, but then also Dave, do you remember small soldiers when that came out back in the 90, late nineties? So I had, um, like small soldiers like joining in um and and so like this is just like a fun kind of crossover with like this is one of the benefits to intellectual properties being owned you know by a major studio um marvel is doing the same thing with like alien and predator there's i saw in solicits there's a wolverine versus the predator book um that's not necessarily my cup of tea but i mean like if you it, it it's fun to just kind of put your guard down and, and just have fun with crossovers like this. Uh, the, the TMNT Power Ranger stuff is some of my favorite comics I've read in recent years. It's just absolute fun, uh, unabashedly, unashamedly fun. Uh, and this looks to be of the same ilk. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. Uh, there are some benefits to the whole IP attitude, you know, that major corporations have. Um, Drawback too, though, is that uh, I think the corporations behind DC and Marvel, uh, you know, we're talking uh, Disney with Marvel and Warner Brothers with DC. Um, I think those are really the, the main issue that we don't see any real crossovers anymore between DC and Marvel comics. Um, and, and so that's a huge drawback because some of those crossovers um, were some of my favorite stuff, I think, um, back in the day. I'm talking like, um, DC versus Marvel Comics, you know, that whole that whole event, the Amalgam universe that they created, and then several one-shots. There were some really cool Batman-Spider-Man uh, crossovers that I really appreciated. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. I wish that DC and Marvel could play nice just a little bit again, you know, when it comes to the comic book side of things. I'm not saying that, you know, Disney and WB need to get together and do an Avengers versus JLA movie or something. Um but I just really wish that the comic books could could play nice with each other. Dude, there was a really, really cool uh, Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, uh, Silver Surfer uh, crossover once. That was really, really fun. There's just so many cool things you can do when you kind of cross the, the, the company line a little bit uh, between those two. And it's just sad that in, in an age where, you know, multiverse is, is, you know, a mainstream word and crossovers are constantly happening in, in comic books and in television shows that we can't, you know, get DC and Marvel, the big two of comics to play nice with each other and give us some more of those crossovers. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. Like um, how, like, uh, I guess it's like a tribalism type thing. Like you, you have, you have freelancers of course that work for both companies, but, and, and executives that say kind things about the other, but there's the little to no interest, at least as far as we know of, of doing something like that. And it's really, really unfortunate. And I think it's a lost opportunity. Um, yeah, just, just truly, truly unfortunate. Um, And that's something that like, it's funny because there's a lot of speculation with the second season of Invincible is Spider-Man going to show up and um, Spider-Man's shown up in uh, in image comics before, like with Savage Dragon and stuff like that. But when it comes to the big two, it's it's does not look like it's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, that little detour in the Invincible comic when Invincible ended up in the Marvel Universe for like a split second was actually quite cool. Um, 
there, there's a great scene where he's he encounters the Avengers, and based on Spider-Man's name, he tries to guess everybody else's name, <laughs> and it's it's really unfortunate. <laughs> so, so if if they actually pull that off in animation, that would be that would be a lot of fun. But again, you know, you're exactly right when it comes to those kinds of crossovers. Still play ball, but between DC and Marvel, they're not, and I think that that's just that's just sad. All right, Chris, you are speaking uh, my language, at least when it comes to, uh, you know, a couple of comic books. Let's not let's not talk about the Ultimates too much, though, because bleh. but go ahead. What's going on, man? Uh, well, I don't know if you've been reading Ultimate Invasion, but um, it's it's a typical Hickman slow burn comic so far. And I'm, I'm definitely intrigued um, with the events as of time of recording of Hellfire Gala. Uh, I, I almost made that my new story, but I didn't want to be depressed too much before I have to go back to work tomorrow. Um, so, but it's interesting to see like what we're, what we're, where we're going here in the trajectory and trying to plot that. But um, on a slow news week, um, I just looked at October solicits and we have ultimate universe. Number one, uh, the solicit reads the spoils of victory after the world shaking conclusion of ultimate invasion um, a new team of heroes bands together to save the future from mastermind Jonathan Hickman and superstar artist Stefano Caselli. Don't miss out on this foundational issue for the new line of Ultimate Comics. And so it is confirmed. Um, I, I, I'm kind of two minds here. Like, I'm excited to see this, but at the same time, I'm like, solicits, it's kind of like, uh, like a dual-edged sword. Is like, it kind of spoils like where this current miniseries is headed. Um, but at the same time, I think I honestly think um, and I know that this this particular character uh, is painful for you. But I honestly think that the maker Ultimate Reed Richards is one of the greatest villains in the Marvel Universe uh, that lead up to the to Hickman's Secret Wars and the making of the city. It's truly like bone chilling villainy. And I, I love seeing him on the page, even when he popped up in like um, other comics. Like I just I just love seeing him and like. What if Reed Richards broke bad, which, you know, I I have a complicated relationship with 616 Reed Richards to begin with. But uh, I I really I've, I've been a longtime fan of Hickman. Uh, Caselli is great on art and. And uh, especially these Ultimate Thor covers. Ultimate Thor is one of my faves. Uh, so I'm definitely excited to see this confirmed. Yeah, you know, I I have, in fact, been reading Ultimate Invasion. And you're right, it is a very much... It, it reminds me a little bit of Hoxpox. They're already like an issue two of, of Ultimate Invasion dropped like their little data page. And I'm like, dude, everything you write needs a data page. But uh, it's Welcome very to Hickman. good. <laughs> yeah, but I'm gonna but I'm gonna tell you it's actually it's actually very very good. You're right, it's slow burn, and you're you're also right that the maker is a fascinating villain. It's it's tough for me uh, because Ultimate Reed Richards was actually my first Reed Richards when I first tried to read, um, you know, Fantastic Four comics. I started with the Ultimate Fantastic Four because, um, you know, I loved Ultimate Spider Man so much. That was the book that got me back into reading comic books after a hiatus. And so I had a big affinity for for the Ultimate Fantastic Four team, and so seeing him kind of go the villain route was you know was was tough. Now I will admit that what they've done with him since has made him a, a fantastic villain. And so what's been going on in Ultimate Invasion has been interesting, but since it is a slow burn, 
you know, I, I still am withholding judgment. It's, it, you know, it's really, really tough to think about the return of the ultimate universe because we're not, I'm not exactly sure what we're getting, if, if you know right. what I mean, right? So a lot of the covers, for example, from that we've seen from Ultimate Invasion are harkening back to like the very, very early days of the Ultimate Universe, right? A lot of these characters died uh, at the hands of Jeff Loeb, the ultimate villain of the Ultimate Universe, actually. <laughs> and so... All due respect so, to the maker. <laughs> yes. And so um, on the one hand, you know, early Ultimate Universe is probably the, the best incarnation of the Ultimate Universe. Um, but there, there are two things to keep in mind there number one is early ultimate universe was also not great except for ultimate spider-man you know like yeah, the check, universe... check our episode on the ultimates first volume <laughs> yeah i mean holy smokes so in, in looking back at the ultimate universe everybody's just sort of a butthole you know and well almost everybody so almost everybody is sort of a butthole and and it makes looking back at those comics by modern standards kind of difficult the standout of course the best thing about the ultimate universe was ultimate spider-man right but you know with with miles in particular uh being integrated into the 616 i don't think they're going to send him back to the ultimate universe and we have not seen especially now when his star has never been brighter Yes, and so we've also not seen anything in the promo artwork to suggest that there will be a, a, a revival of Ultimate Spider-Man, that there's even an Ultimate Peter Parker floating around anywhere here. All the all the artwork has been avoiding him. There's not a single shot of anything Spider-Man looking, as far as I could tell. There is, a, um, there is an intentionally silhouetted character that is in a very spidery pose on the main cover. But it's silhouetted, so yeah. So I'm I'm very very skeptical, um, because on the one hand, if you bring back the Ultimate Universe without the best thing about the Ultimate Universe, which is you know Ultimate Peter Parker, you know is it truly the Ultimate Universe? But on the flip side, if you bring back the Ultimate Universe very much in the shape of what it was like in those early days, that's not going to be a fun read either, because everybody's a butthole, right? But then on the flip side of that, if you change too much about the Ultimate Universe, why are you calling it the Ultimate Universe? It's just another alternate reality. You know, is it really the Ultimate Universe if everybody's not a butthole? It's, it, you know, it's just a very complicated feeling about this. Like, is it good that it's coming back? Is it going to come back the way it was? If it is too different, is it even going to be the Ultimate Universe? Or is it Ultimate Universe in name only? This is... I'm left with a lot of complicated feelings about this whole situation, Chris. I'm very much, I'm very much taking a wait and see approach. Um, did you read Hickman's Ultimate stuff? Like that last, I think it was the last volume of Ultimates, and then he had Ultimate Thor. N- no, I, I tell you what happened with me is that Jeff Loeb happened, a writer that I, you know, trusted because of his work on Batman and Superman over at DC, and and Ultimates three and four left such a bad taste in my mouth. That I disconnected from anything Ultimate totally except for Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah, so I missed I missed out on that stuff. Yeah, I I highly recommend it. Um, it, it's it's a completely that's why I was so shocked when I read that first volume of Ultimates because it was completely tonally different. My my other than Ultimate Spider-Man, the only experience I had with the Ultimate Universe was Hickman, and it, it's it's completely tonally different. It's very much the same tone that he has right now. I mean, and, and I know that I come across as like a Hickman evangelist, but to be completely honest, I've never read a Hickman thing that I 
actively disliked. Um, some stuff worked better for me than others. Um, but like, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see where we go with this because I agree with you. Like miles, I don't think miles is going just straight back to the ultimate universe. Um, and in the age of oversaturation of multiverse talk, um, I'm, I'm intrigued to see where we go from here. Can we just at least agree agree that if they don't bring back um, Ultimate Jessica Drew, shut up! You Peter took the Parker, words from my mouth. I love that is an injustice. <laughs> she's oh, such a good character. I had the biggest crush on her. Oh my god! Yeah, she's a fantastic character. Just so good. And if they don't bring her back, that's an injustice against nature. I just it's just not right, man. It's just not right. All right, that wraps up nerd news for this week. When we return, our Byword Big Talk, our favorite substitutes. Welcome back to this week's Byword. And as previously teased again and again, we are talking our favorite substitutes. We are calling in the replacements. We want a sick day. And we are talking about our favorite substitutes in standard byword order. Uh, we each have three characters that have filled in or legacy characters or replacement characters, however you feel, uh, that we like that are an improvement on the original in some cases. So, Dave, uh, I think this first one of yours is probably the entire reason for this episode. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that that's where the, where the idea came from. Um, so, you know, there've, there's been, you know, outright replacement heroes that have completely replaced another hero for decades. But even those are oftentimes temporary replacements, even if they're around for decades. I'm looking at you, poor Wally West, who was, you know, the Flash since like the 1980s, since Crisis on Infinite Earths. And then, you know, Jeff Johns decided to bring back Barry Allen Anyways, even though I don't think anybody was really asking for it at the time. Anywho, uh, so when it comes to replacements, substitutes, they are oftentimes just that, you know, they are temporary replacements with an exit strategy already built into the storytelling. Um, And some of those replacements, some of those uh, substitutes work better than others. I'll tell you uh, one of the uh, other reasons why I thought this would be a fun episode is because we're getting a new Punisher. And I think we can all agree this is probably also going to be a temporary substitute. (laughs) There's no way that that is going to go over so well. Uh, But the substitute that is probably my favorite of all time is Dick Grayson as Batman. Now, I'm really, really conflicted about the notion of Dick Grayson as Batman usually because I like that he is his own man, that he's moved out of Batman's shadow as Nightwing and has his own life and is, is respected on his own terms as a superhero. He doesn't need to be Batman. But on the flip side, every time that he picks up the cape and cowl, it's just good times. Um, so the first time where they made a serious uh, storyline of this was in, at the tail end of Nightfall in uh, 1994, I believe. Uh, Nightfall was 93-94. Of course, Nightfall, you had Bane famously break Bruce Wayne's back. Um, and Bruce Wayne picks a successor while he recuperates. And instead of picking uh, Dick Grayson, he picks uh, Jean-Paul Valley, who is uh, mentally unstable, as it turns out. Um, and, you know, becomes sort of a, a you know, armored um, 
vigilante Punisher style Batman and Bruce has to, you know, recuperate and, and take him down. But in at the end of that, Bruce actually in a storyline called Prodigal uh, hands over uh, the Batman cape and cowl so he can finish recuperating and it's Dick Grayson for a little while. And it was it was a very, very cool storyline at the time. But the coup de gras, the greatest and best version of Dick Grayson as Batman by far was under the pen of Grant Morrison. Uh, I don't think anybody can deny that. You had, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne's supposed death at the hands of Darkseid in Final Crisis. But really, he had been transported back in time, right? Um, there was a little uh, miniseries called Battle for the Cowl, where uh, the Batman family sort of in conflict of who should you know, take over as Batman. And at the end, it is Dick Grayson, the original Robin. And uh, he teams up with his own Robin, which is Damian Wayne, Bruce Wayne's son. And this dynamic is what makes the book Batman and Robin by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly. It is a perfect and beautiful inversion of the Batman and Robin relationship. Whereas Bruce and Dick, you had a uh, relationship of Batman being grim and broody and Robin being like this bright, shining beacon. And here we invert it and you have a Batman who will smile, a Batman who's a lot more relaxed and comfortable in his skin, who isn't, you know, carrying all this trauma around because Dick is just emotionally much better balanced than Bruce. And he has to (laughs) contend with this little twerp who was raised by the League of Assassins. And the dynamic is so, so good between those two. And it makes probably for one of my favorite Batman and Robin comic books of all time. There's also a really cool storyline called Streets of Gotham, where the new Batman has to team up with uh, Commissioner Gordon. And there's some interesting storylines there. But seeing, you know, Dick Grayson put his own spin on being Batman without just being a carbon copy of Bruce Wayne was so refreshing at the time. And it just did not last long enough. Um, You know, I think there were like 20, 25 issues or so of that initial Batman and Robin run. Um, But Bruce Wayne returned somewhere like after the first year, year and a half of that book. And then there's like two Batman for a little while because we have, you know, we cruise towards that whole Batman incorporated era. But man, Dick Grayson as Batman was so much fun. Now, I, in the end, I think I prefer him as his own man, as Nightwing. But there was something so refreshing about him as Batman that completely changed the dynamic of Batman stories and Batman storytelling. And it would have been so much fun to just let that breathe just a little longer than just those few issues because it worked like a charm, Chris. I don't know, Dave. Uh, You might have a different experience growing up in Germany, but like, did you ever have like a favorite substitute? Like when you knew your teacher was ill or was missing time and like they came in and you were like, yes, it's Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. No, I did not, because as it turns out, uh, they phased out substitutes fairly quickly. I had some in elementary school, but they were pretty rare. By the time I hit middle school, uh, you know, in in the school district that I was, I guess you could say, uh, your parents could basically sign a waiver that you, you know, if there's a free period, that if the teacher's not there, you can just go to a room and, you know, like a study hall and do homework, or you could Go off camp, go off campus, and so I would go off campus to this little youth cafe and play Civilization on a little. Of course computer. you, of course you did, you nerd. <laughs> or I would, or I would, or I would play, play pool with some friends. But yeah, my first encounter with Civil, Sid Meier Civilization was actually at a little youth cafe during a free period uh, at school. So, so I did not have a lot of substitutes until I moved here, um, and then I had no favorites because they they all sucked. Well, 
you probably feel this way. Uh, you know, like when you know that you're going to miss a day, we have kids that are like, can you please get so-and-so to be the substitute? Can you please get Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so? Um, that's exactly how I feel about Dick Grayson. Like he's my favorite substitute. Um, I regrettably, regrettably, I fell off. I read the first five or six issues when you first put this book on my radar, the Morrison book, um, to clarify. And I just immediately, like I read the first five or six issues that first night. And then as I am wont to do when it comes to my comic book reading habits, I got distracted by something else and I desperately need to tap back in because it was, it was such a beautiful dynamic between this spoiled brat, Damien, who's just, just this, the best kind of insufferable little for lack of a better, lack of a better term. And then, I, I cannot speak enough to how I am. It's very difficult for me to break into DC. It feels very much like you are with X-Men comics. Um, we've talked a lot about how X-Men is essentially is its own publishing line. So the trepidation that you have when it comes to X-Men books, I have the same thing when it comes to DC. But the the one connective tissue that I have is Dick Grayson, and that's through playing um, Gotham Knights, which is a game that I overall enjoyed. It was my favorite game, but simply the storyline of being, for lack of a better term, the eldest child, the one burdened with responsibility, and as you said, the one that's been more emotionally balanced, uh, who lost both of his parents as well. And yet is more emotionally balanced than his his predecessor. Uh, I love Dick Grayson more than anything uh, in, in terms of DC characters. And so he's my favorite substitute. And I'm, I'm jealous that he's first on your list. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's find out what's uh, first on your list, Chris. Listen, I'm I'm so excited um, when we revisited the nerd commendations a while back. Uh, that this was at the top of your list um, because I, I just adore Jane Foster's Thor run as, as the mighty Thor. And, and the fact that, that Jason Aaron was willing to go and not in it, it. It's interesting because you have naysayers and insecure men who say that, Oh, this is Marvel. I'm not going to say the W word, because if you're a person that uses that W word um, as socially cognizant, I, you are a loser. OK, but this was so much more than just a female Thor. There was so much depth and emotional heft to this storytelling. Um, her defeating the Mangog was one of the most triumphant feelings I've ever had. Um, and like answering for the past sins of Asgard as a newcomer to the mantle, to that entire realm was very, very powerful. I think that's some of the most emotional comic books that I've ever read. So Jane Foster as the mighty Thor is not just the lip service and filling a quota for female comic book heroes, um, and then her subsequent appearances that I've seen as Valkyrie. I've uh, admittedly not read as much as I'd like to, but I, I truly enjoy this character um, in recent years. 
It's hilarious that you brought this up because this was like the second one that actually came to mind. But I figured that uh, you would be very, uh, let's say, territorial heavy. (laughs) Yeah, Marvel heavy. Let's put it that way. And I decided it might be best for my health to go ahead and stick to DC for this one. Um, And, you know, it is uh, it is obviously a a fantastic, uh, you know, character put through such an interesting situation with the cancer and everything. Um, I really, really enjoyed this run. I enjoyed her as, as a, you know, a fill in for Thor. Uh, you know, obviously Thor was off doing his own thing somewhere else over here. And that, and that ended up being what unworthy Thor, I think was the, was the comic. Great, being, great book as well. That one was really, really strong too. Yeah. So I can't complain because, you know, we got, we got two, really good stories for the price of one there. So that, that is among my favorite um, substitutes as well. All right. Now we transition to one. I know absolutely nothing about, unless you're talking about that insurrectionist that stormed the Capitol on young justice. Yeah, that is not who I'm talking about <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Just so you know, young justice is a, is a, is a weird, weird take on this particular character. Um, so, uh, my my second favorite fill-in that I love to talk about is Superboy, specifically Connor Kent as Superboy. Uh, I think we have to remember here that for a very, very long time, uh, when you used the term Superboy uh, with comics, you were talking about a young Clark Kent who was going on little adventures. I've never been a huge fan of the notion of Clark putting on the suit as a, as a teenager and, and all that comes along with that. And so uh, when we got that whole uh, John Byrne reinvention of Superman in the 80s, one of the things that he set out to do was basically saying, I'm kind of done with all these Kryptonians. If he's the last son of Krypton, why are there 50 million running around? And he also kind of put the kibosh on um, powers manifesting really, really early in life. Like his powers didn't manifest until he was a late teen. So he had a pretty normal life. He wasn't like, you know, super baby lifting cars or something or, you know, picking up tractors or anything like that on the farm. Um, And I think that that allowed the character to feel a little more grounded because he had a very grounded upbringing. But that meant naturally that a lot of stuff was erased at that point from Superman. And one of those was Superboy and all of his adventures that he had. Well, you reach 1993 and you get one of the biggest Superman storylines of all time, the death of Superman. And they unveil uh, after his death four candidates that could be a return Superman. Um, you had, you know, uh, John and Henry Iron Steel, which, of course, was not a return Superman. Uh, you had um, Cyborg Superman, which a lot of people put their money on, but he turned out to be a villain. Uh, you had a very violent sort of Punisher-esque Superman that turned out to be a Kryptonian artificial intelligence uh, called the Eradicator, um, which had been established in a, in a previous storyline. And then finally, you had uh, a teenager uh, who would eventually go on to take the name Connor Kent. And this is Superboy. Uh, he was uh, cloned uh, at Cadmus uh, in a, as a you know effort of trying to bring, uh, you know, have the, let the world have a Superman again after all. But as a teenager, he breaks out and he's pretty, you know, willful and wants to, ha- you know, do things his own way. The cool thing about Connor Kent, especially early Connor Kent, is that he's such a little, pardon my French, but he's such a little man. Like this overly <laughs> this overly serious thing that you see in Young Justice. I, I never quite understood why that's the approach they took uh, with this character. Because when you first see him, he's running around. He has an earring 
uh, and he's uh, he's wearing a leather jacket with an S on the back. Peak nineties. Peak nineties. Peak nineties. He's such an edgy little bro, but it, but in a really fun way. Like he 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 wants to be adored. You know, he wants to be held up there with with Superman as one of the greatest. But he's also a bit of a glory hound. You know, and he 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 wants the press to talk about him, and he wants to be interviewed, and he's constantly as many many teenage boys do he's constantly chasing women right he's constantly um trying to flirt with people and doing it so ineptly that he inevitably is rejected pretty much immediately and so seeing that little twerp with zero life expect uh, a life experience that was like grown in a in a in a tube uh slowly come into his own and become a hero and learn what it takes and slowly develop over the years to to live up to superman is is an absolutely wonderful storytelling. I think the initial Super, Superboy series that launched after the death of Superman ran for over 100 issues or something. It was really, really good stuff. I think it was initially written by Carl Kessel, I think. Um, and so that Connor Kent has just was so much fun. And, uh, and I enjoyed that character so very much. And I still think to this day, he's a superior take on the idea of a teenage Superman rather than just saying, you know, we take the established Superman and when he was a teenager, he was already flying around. Like, I think this is a much cooler take on the concept. Um, and even though we now have a lot, you know, a lot, lot more super characters and we also have John Kent now, Superman's son running around, I think there's still a place for this little, you know, arrogant twerp who is who is constantly trying to grow as a person. I just adore this character. You know, I think a lot of, the writing around John Kent in particular is that he's like this flawless young adult, you know, like how you would imagine Superman's son to be. But Connor Kent is far from flawless, and I and I adore him for it. Yeah, this is probably uh, the DC character that I have zero experience with, but I am probably most intrigued by simultaneously because he's very very popular. On like on social media, especially and within the fandom. And it's just like one of those where like, I'm definitely intrigued to dive into this character because as a Leo, I am all about cockiness and backing it up. So I'm, I'm definitely intrigued. And, and, it, you know, I'm going to say it again. It's totally worth it. I don't know if you ever read like the death of Superman storyline. If, if you have not, I recommend it just because it is, it stands as one of like the, one of the greatest event comics, I would say of all time. Uh, but once you have that read, you know, the death and return of Superman, then you have a basis for launching into, you know, the the original Steel series, for example. John Henry Iron is such a great character, too. Um, and then you can launch into uh, the Eradicator and the Outsiders, I think, was a really cool series that ran for a while where they did more with the Eradicator character. Uh, but Superboy, out of all the stuff that launched out of the death of Superman, was probably my favorite. There's a really cool crossover that they did between Superboy and Tim Drake Robin, too, that was really, really fun and involved Metallo and Poison Ivy. Um, and of course, you know, naturally, Superboy is like chasing Poison Ivy around the whole time because <laughs> this is just, he's, just a, he's just a very, very hormonal teenage boy. Um, but it's, it's, it's just... A very, very good ride. It's good stuff to read. Very 90s in a lot of ways, but on the flip side, just also very good quality storytelling. All right, Chris, this next one I am going to pay very careful attention to. I promise I am not going to let my eyes glaze over. 
Uh, you have my undivided attention. Listen, uh, it's two of my favorite characters in comics, and it's Cyclops and Emma Frost as the headmaster and headmistress, respectively, of the Xavier Institute. After the death of Charles Xavier, they took over as the, the people who ran the school. And in a lot of ways, you have to let that next generation take over because the previous one becomes tone deaf and out of touch. And the fact that they were able to put both of their heads together in an era where we had the decimation um, for for the flat scans. That is after Wanda says no more mutants and mutants are decimated to a population of only 198. So very tough times for mutants. I promise this is a, a new thing at the time. Um, but to be able to lead like mutants, uh, especially mutant youths at that time, very difficult where a lot of people, a lot of mutants that were already at the school are suddenly depowered. So very tough times, uh, their late, their leadership carried them through that. Um, and just a lot of great character beats. I'm a big fan of the Academy X era of the early to mid two thousands. Um, even though most of their fans are a, a good deal younger than me. Um, I just really, really appreciate their leadership, um, especially in the face of adversity like that. And uh, they truly listened, uh, I think, to their students a lot, a good deal better than Xavier did. A, a lot of Charles Xavier, I, I guess the loss of innocence for a lot of X-Men fans is realizing that Charles Xavier is a gaslighter and really not the best person. Um and and kind of listening to the students, making their voices heard, being advocates for those their stu- uh, those students, uh, really really resonated with me. Number one, as an educator, and, and number two, as someone who tries to be empathic and and take other people's feelings into consideration. So Cyclops and uh, Emma Frost, Schema forever. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, um, obviously, I can't speak to this particular era because I haven't read it, but I am interested in in kind of um, using this as a jumping off point because there's a lot of uh, every time you talk about X Men, there's a lot of like Charles Xavier, you know, hate, I guess you could say, involved in the discussion. And so, I, I guess that brings me to a very interesting question, since we're talking about substitute teachers here, so to speak. Do you feel like there are characters, like let's say, for example, a Charles Xavier? that have run their course in comics and don't really need to be around anymore that you know the the franchise or the book uh whatever we're talking about could stand without them like i almost feel like bruce wayne is a case like that you know like he's the cash cow uh, you know as a character batman is the cash cow for dc and he's i don't think bruce wayne is ever going away but there are times when i read a batman story and i feel like as a character bruce is is sort of in a loop of constantly learning to open up to people and then he learns the lesson and then he resets back to being you know yeah uh, a bat you know, and then he has mm-hmm. to learn the lesson again. And I feel like maybe there are some characters that have run their course a little bit. And if not outright permanently retired, need like a very, very long break. Uh, like we're talking like a Barry Allen break. Like, let's give it 30 years and see what happens. You know, uh, do you think like characters like Charles Xavier have kind of run their course a little bit and need like an extended vacation? I don't it's it's so ironic that you say that at this time given the the events of the Hellfire Gala and the second mutant massacre um 
I really think that it's going to be interesting to follow. Um, tentatively, I'm going to say yes, because what more does this man, speaking specifically of Xavier, what more does he need to learn? I mean, he, with with everything that happened during this Krokoa era, and it, it really feels like what what more could there be? Like I I feel like a character like Xavier has run its course. Like I. I, I'm I'm ready to be proven wrong here, but the the fact that Xavier in particular continues to bend over backwards to for humanity, humans in a world that famously hates and fears mutants, and and what is the end result? Mutants are continually massacred, and like, do we continue need to? bashing our head against the wall for this so i'm going to tentatively say yes and see that is interesting because in the american comic book market we're in a situation where nothing ever really ends and no characters are necessarily ever precisely true truly gone right but uh, there are times when it feels like except for uncle ben (laughs) you know yeah except for uncle ben so far um but it sometimes feels like it might be it might be worth to push a little bit forward um that's one thing i think that dc has in the past at least done really well is like pushing forward retiring characters letting the next generation take over again i'm talking about like a you know a wally west for example who was flash for so long um it's nostalgia that always brings the old stuff back eventually around right but uh sort of a lengthy retirement for some characters and really letting the substitutes become sort of the full-time teachers for a little while uh i think maybe worth the price of admission i is it I just complained about this on social media, but like, I'm going to try and keep this family friendly language, but the, my, my greatest frustration with Marvel is it's, it's the cyclical nature of how we will explore for a couple of years, new storylines, new potential, and then ultimately revert back to nostalgia. Um, that's my greatest fear with this fall of X and Krakoa that I swear to God, if we have to go back to that school in upstate New York, um, it, it's it's just even if they don't commit to it fully in the bit, like we've got another superior Spider-Man coming back. We, You know, you know, you and I have had it out a lot about uh, the Kamala Khan of it all and the synergy of, you know, the MCU and her now having to be a mutant in the, the comic nerd by word civil war almost happened. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. We It, it got a little intense. But uh, there, there is your flip side to synergy. I am not going to be at all surprised that when an MCU X-Men movie comes along finally that they want to be in that school in upstate New York because that's the most quote-unquote iconic as as in the most nostalgic version of of the x-men situation and synergy is going to is going to take krakoa from you um, i would not be surprised if that happens uh, it's just another reason why i don't like synergy between between the mcu and the comic books well and even if they don't commit to it like a full nostalgic reboot in the comics then like the the other like little appetizers we have for the old heads is what Marvel is doing with like these lost stories. And there are a lot of creators that are coming back that I absolutely adore that are from the eighties and nineties, but especially X-Men comics, they have like these, the storm solo right now is a flashback. It has nothing to do with like, we've been waiting so long for a storm solo and love Claremont, you know, but 
it's it's like a throwback. Uh, we have the I, th- I think there was a New Mutants one. I think there's a Magneto one written by JMD, and like you'll never find a bigger fan of James A. Mateus than me. But like, how much do we need to keep backtracking with these characters? But I think that's the preferable. That's the preferable setup, right? No, that, have, that's not untrue. Yeah, yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, if you have if if you have the current comics pushing forward and telling you know new stories. And then you tell these lost tales in like mini series format for the people who can't let go of the nostalgia. That's having your cake and eat it too. But I think what I think the fear, at least that I have seen online with like what happened with the Hellfire Gala, the fear seems to be what you're worried about, which is that the current storyline is going to revert into a form of what came before. And I think if they can avoid that by by telling these lost tales, I think that is hugely preferable. I know that there was like Peter David did a couple of things. I think he, there was also a symbiote Spider-Man that was like a throwback to when he first got the symbiote suit. Um, that kind of stuff, you know, is hugely preferable as like these little miniseries that pop up and and kind of feed and feed that nostalgia a little bit rather than, you know, tanking the main book and losing all forward momentum. No, I, to- I totally agree. I absolutely agree. All right, Dave, your final character. Now, you would think that in a concept uh, as such as the Green Lantern Corps, where you have all these, you know, thousands and thousands of, of Green Lanterns, that there is no real true replacement character, no real substitute. But I beg to differ. When we go back to the early 90s, you know, there was something in the water at DC Comics because everybody was dying, going crazy or being replaced, right? You you had the death and return of Superman in in 93. Uh, You had Nightfall, that was uh, 93 and 94. And then you had Emerald Twilight in the Green Lantern book, and this was 1994. And here, Hal Jordan loses his hometown. The whole place gets basically destroyed. Everybody's dead. He kind of loses his mind a little bit and needs the power of the central battery in order to try to restore everything. So he goes through the entire Green Lantern Corps and kills everybody, and there is no more Green Lantern Corps. And there is a singular ring that survives, and a guardian called Gantha travels to Earth, and just hands the ring over to the first dude he sees and says, you will have to do, and that is Kyle Rayner. And so Kyle Rayner's Green Lantern was a replacement Green Lantern. He was a substitute, not just for Hal Jordan, but for the entirety of the Green Lantern Corps, which then went on to not exist for something like 100 issues. There was no Green Lantern Corps. There was only one singular Green Lantern. And it is in this era of comic books that I... Uh, entered the fray as we started having a decent publishing line in Germany for a while. I first encountered Kyle Rayner in the pages of Grant Morrison's JLA, having, you know, knowing very little about the concept of a Green Lantern and absolutely falling in love with the everyman Kyle Rayner, the artist who can, you know, literally conjure anything with the power of his ring, the everyman who is new to the job and trying to figure out how to be a, a, a superhero uh, and standing among, you know, the greats of like Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. And so naturally, when I had the chance, I jumped into. Uh, his solo run as well, which was, of course, written uh, initially by Ron Mars. Um, and I have to say, uh, even though we've had really, really cool new Green Lantern comic uh, comics since then, and a lot of the stuff that came even out of Hal Jordan's return was very, very good and very well written. And even though I would say that Joe Mullen today is probably my favorite of the Green Lantern core, uh, I have such a fondness for Kyle Rayner as being 
the the guy who got me into the concept at a time when there were no other Green Lanterns to like. Like you could not hold up. Here's Guy Gardner and here's John Stewart and here's Hal Jordan. Which one do you like best? Like there was no Green Lantern. There was just Kyle Rayner, and he carried the torch. Which is why even in the comic books they oftentimes call him the torchbearer. Uh, he carried the torch for the concept of Green Lanterns for such a long time and so effectively that he still stands as one of my favorite Green Lanterns and probably one of my favorite substitutes. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with this. What I've read of the character in Morrison's JLA and his solo run, I've I've greatly enjoyed. Um, I'm I'm always a big fan of the fake it till you make it uh, like trope in comics. That's why I love Ultimate Spider-Man. Like I always feel overwhelmed and in way over my head. So like I was easily able to relate to that. I did drop off on his solo run after the infamous fridging uh incident so that was that was tough to follow up but other than that like i I really enjoy seeing this character pop up in subsequent stories as well and i love that yes we have 400 green lanterns for earth and everything but like i love how distinct and different that they are um and so you know kyle still seems like a fish out of water in a lot of ways when he does pop up what's really sad actually is that if you jumped off at the fridging (laughs) infamous as it is you you have not gotten to the best Kyle Rayner stuff by a long shot. Like there are so many cool things that come out of that series. It's it's absolutely unbelievable. Um, I absolutely adore when he when he actually uh, reignites the the central power battery and brings the Guardians back. <laughs> I mean his his run as Green Lantern is is absolutely just a, a benchmark to me to this day for for how cool the concept of Green Lantern can be. Um, even if there's no core, you know, like even if you take all of the all of the trappings of the space space peacekeepers away and just like go down to the bare concept, like he he is a real high watermark for me. His whole run was really really good. All right, uh, Chris, that brings us to your last. And boy, oh boy, I already agree. But go ahead. Listen, I haven't read the most recent volume, but I desperately need to. But when Elektra took over for Daredevil, it was just like chef's kiss. And like her internal conflict of like retraining her brain and her entire ethos of being a non-lethal. Like that was the promise that she made to Matt Murdock is that she would not kill anyone. Uh, while he was going through his trials and tribulations in jail and on trial and stuff like that. So I absolutely loved uh, Chip Zdarsky's like first volume as Daredevil, and I desperately need to get into this most recent one. Um, I'm also excited to see Saladin Ahmed take over. So I need to I need to get caught up. But I, I loved even the visuals. Marco, uh, Marco Cicchetto, uh, like drawing Electra, particularly her her curly hair. Absolutely just spellbindingly beautiful. Um, I, I loved everything. So this is probably our most recent one, um, but absolutely love Electra as Daredevil. It's wild because um, one of the things that I probably love the most about Electra as Daredevil is the costume. I think that is one of the coolest costumes, the costume designs that we have gotten in a good long while. I put it right up there as something instantly iconic, like uh, uh, Kamala Khan's Miss Marvel suit, that initial outfit she wore. 
it's just instantly recognizable and instantly iconic and I absolutely adored it. And yes, I too have fallen off the most recent volume. I think the last thing I read was there the the whole like war against the, the kingpin as yep. he was mayor, yep. which was the end of the la- the previous volume. Yep. So I have some catching up to do as Devil's well. Devil's Reign, Devil's Reign. Yeah. Devil's Reign, that's it was correct. A, a great event, great. But but yeah, but Sadarsky's Daredevil has been has been so very good. Um and and that is probably one of my favorite things about it, just seeing Electra kind of go through this evolution, you know, of, of like going non-lethal and and kind of starting to see things through through Matt's eyes a little bit more, literally walking a mile in his shoes, so to speak. Um, it's a just a fantastic run. All right, that wraps up our byword big talk for this week. Who did we miss on our list? Who are your favorite substitutes? Be sure to hit us up across all socials at Nerd by Word. Stick around, because after our last break, we are hitting you with two more nerd commendations. Welcome back for our final segment of this episode. We call it... All right, Dave, um, what are you nerd commending for us this week? Let's get weird. Let's get let, let's just get real weird, okay? <laughs> so uh, I want to tell you the story of Supergirl, but it is not a story of Supergirl that you have ever seen or heard before unless you were a fan of the comics in the 80s and 90s. Supergirl that you know is Kara Zor-El, is the cousin of Superman who was also rocketed away from Krypton and is also a Kryptonian survivor. But the Supergirl that I grew up with was not that. I uh, read Superman comics in the shadow of the John Byrne reboot. And one of the things that they set out to do was to say that there are no other Kryptonian survivors. There is only Superman. So when you wanted other Kryptonians, you you couldn't have them. So they had to get really, really inventive. Um, And one way that they got really inventive was with Supergirl and our uh, favorite General Zod, right? And the three Kryptonian criminals from the Phantom Zone. So here's the story that there's a pocket universe alternate reality where Superman never grew up to be Superman. He died before that. And Lex Luthor is a good guy. And the three Kryptonian criminals escape the Phantom Zone and there's nobody to stand up to them. So Lex Luthor invents a protoplasmic matrix for an artificial life form. Um, and this life form can shapeshift, can turn invisible, um, and has telekinesis powers. Is also inhumanly strong, can fly. Shapeshifts into uh, a female form with blonde hair, puts on a Superman suit, and calls herself Supergirl. But because she's unable to stop the three Kryptonian criminals, she is sent to Superman's reality to recruit Superman so he can come and help stop these three criminals. Um, They win, but her pocket universe is basically uh, lifeless and destroyed. And so she comes to the main DC universe and spends time uh, acclimating on the Kent farm and being, quote unquote, raised to be, you know, a proper person by Jonathan and Martha Kent, who call this life form, which was called Matrix by good guy Lex Luthor, May. So then we have uh, this situation throughout the 90s, through the death and return of Superman, of a Supergirl who is not Kryptonian and has very different powers, but looks very much like Supergirl. 
Um, and then, of course, because Lex Luthor in her own pocket universe created her when she meets, quote-unquote, our Lex Luthor, she falls in love with him and they have a whole thing and Superman's mad about it and it's a whole thing. This is all background, by the way, to what I want to talk about. <laughs> because then they decide to give Peter David a Supergirl book and he has to somehow kind of make sense of all this Matrix stuff. And he decides the best thing that he can do is he's going to take a human character who is dying by the name of Linda Danvers and is going to have Matrix basically merge with her in an effort to save her life. And the series that we get, Supergirl, uh, written by Peter David, is all about Matrix and Linda, now a singular human being, perfectly merged, trying to figure out how to live as a person with two different sets of memories and a whole life. Um, and it is, as weird as it sounds, it's shockingly good. Uh, the art on the book is strong. Peter David is, is is writing really, really good. There's some fantastic little crossovers with other books, including Resurrection Man, that are really, really enjoyable. And seeing you know, this formerly artificial life form, you know, taking on the memories and life of a human being and, and navigating what it means to be human. Uh, shockingly good. There's also uh, a little bit of, um, you know, uh, let's say religious imagery and mythology that ends up sneaking in uh, with the notion of demons and angels popping up. Um, I am currently reading all of this on DC Universe Infinite. I'm in the third of four omnibus editions uh, that collect the entire series. Um, and I have to say, uh, for a very, very different take on on Supergirl, uh, th this is fantastic. Uh, really, really fun. And it's interesting how, having grown up with this character, you know, as, as a guest star repeatedly in the Superman comic books, but not ever, ever having sat down and read her solo, how good... Uh, this character actually still holds up and how unique she is in the long run from somebody like Kara Zorel and how I almost think like that there even today could be a place for this version of Supergirl in some way, shape or form in this, in the Superman family, because she's just so unique and different and, and interesting. Um, so yeah, I think if you want to see a very, very different take on the concept of a Supergirl, then uh, Peter David's Supergirl on, on DC Universe Infinite will hit the spot. You you really meant weird, didn't you? I don't mess around, <laughs> man. And Lex Luthor just can't help himself. <laughs> well, the thing with Lex Luthor that's so fascinating, and if you want me to get even weirder, at this time he had a full head of red hair because he was not actually, actually Lex Luthor. He was Lex Luthor Jr., but he wasn't really Lex Luthor Jr. See, Lex Luthor had his brain transplanted into a clone body, a younger clone body of himself because he was dying from kryptonite poisoning. And he was posing as his own long lost son, Lex Luthor Jr. Uh, okay. That makes, uh, that makes the amalgam character in uh, dark Knights of steel all the more, make more sense. You know what I'm saying? Cause like he has red hair. So that makes, that makes much more sense now. Um, yeah, I definitely, definitely intrigued. You should be, man. It's out there, but it is so good. It's it's really like it has no right. I, I can't do I can't do it justice is the problem. Like when you describe it, it's like this is the weirdest crap I've ever heard in my life. Who comes up with this? But when you read it, like it works on every level. The visuals, the storytelling, the characters. Like, dude, this sucker clicks. It's it's really hard to believe how good this is. All right, Chris, what is your nerd commendation? I have a funny feeling yours is a little more conventional. Well, listen, we've talked about it a good deal enough, but uh, this came out before 
um we started this show so i feel like it's 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 time to give it its proper nerd accommodation i'm talking about assassin's creed odyssey so i was playing around with my 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 um my my game uh catalog and and was you know looking for something to play and then i fired up this game and realized that i didn't finish all the dlc and uh, there were three whole chapters, but I, I really love this game as like a historical nerd. And I, and I know that you and I have talked about the difficulty of period pieces and historical stuff, but I, I, I appreciate historical fiction because it's right out there in the front. Like this is historical fiction. Like, don't worry about getting factual stuff. Um, and uh, it's just really cool to see, particularly in the DLC. So to, to set the scene, this is set during the Peloponnesian War. You have Athens versus Sparta um, and, and you're the mercenary. You can choose between Cassandra or Alexios, brother or sister. Um, and it turns out that a lot of people are choosing Cassandra. I chose Alexios. Um, and uh, so you go through all of that. But then the DLC, you get to go to Elysium and take care of missions there. Then you get to go to the underworld. Then you get to go to Atlantis and just seeing these mythological places, uh, places like visualized on screen is just truly fascinating. And like some of the side sweeping just visually, one of the most beautiful games, uh, any, all three of these recently released ones, um, between origins, Odyssey and, and Valhalla, just absolutely gorgeous scenery, um, and, and being able to visit these mythological places, come into contact with these these gods and deities and goddesses that, you, you know, you grew up reading stories about and just seeing them visualized, even if it's a different interpretive take on that is just fascinating. Yeah, I've uh, recently started playing this from scratch. I've never actually, you know, sat down and played the whole thing. And yes, I chose Cassandra. Um, there's something deeply satisfying uh for some reason for me, uh, I guess where I was raised by, you know, some strong women. Um, there's something deeply satisfying of playing a video game as a strong woman. And Cassandra is such a good character. <laughs> like she's really, really great. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very early still in the game, but I'm enjoying it a great deal. Um, I think you're exactly right that the scenery is gorgeous, uh, that the, the gameplay is really strong. Um, and I'm really, really enjoying it. Uh, even with some of the historical inaccuracies, I find myself... Uh, just really, really loving this one. So I'm, I'm planning on sticking with it. Of course, uh, Immortals Phoenix Rising is also beckoning me uh, at the same time because, uh, you know, I guess I'm, I'm just on a Greek trip or something. And the sense of humor of that particular game has it's got me coming back really strong right now. <laughs> Previous nerd commendation, a lot of fun. Yeah, so I'm, I'm having a good time right now gaming with, with that sort of gaming style. And Odyssey is a really good game, man. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word. We thank you so much for riding along with us. If you like what you hear, please be sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or nerdbyword.com. And of course, you can find us on social media because we too like to hear what you think of our uh, what you think of our little discussion here about substitutes. Uh, who are your favorite substitute superheroes? We'd love to know, and uh, we'd love to know what you think of our nerd commendations this week, or if you have some that we need to check out because we haven't checked them out yet. So you can find us on. Do I have to call it X, Chris? Just nerd by word across all socials. Nerd by word across all socials. And on some socials, you can find us individually at, as well at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. 
And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Thank you.